0: The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, New Testament scholar Dr. Douglas Campbell explores our participation with Christ and with each other in communion with God. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, this time I would like to talk about your book, The Quest for Paul's Gospel, or at least some of the concepts that are in it. But I'd like to start with by talking about the cover. It's a very unique cover, and if you could tell us about how that came about and what the meaning of some of these symbols are on it. Uh, well, this is
1: the secret to the book. Uh, the, you have to be nice about the cover because it was designed by my wife. Ah, very
0: good.
1: But I think it is very funky. She's a very funky woman. <laughs> uh, buried in this collage uh, codes about what I'm talking about in the book. So my students always pick it up and have a bit of a chuckle. Uh, but at the top, there are two boxes in the hour A to B. And most people have a theory about how Paul gets you from box A to box B. Box B is where you want to go. But there are lots of different theories about exactly how you set up box A and box B and how you get from one to the other, and I think some of these can get in the way of what Paul is often doing. But the model that I like, that I really push for in this book, is sneaked in through the middle here, and it uses these letters. You've got two P's and then an M and an E going around the corner. And what I'm getting at there is that I think Paul's gospel is all about P for participation and E is for eschatology, which is one of those wonderful words you should use at a cocktail party from time to time. Yeah. Um, meaning, there's a sense in which God has brought to us a new reality, um, a perfected reality, uh, which is superior to the one that, in a way that we're occupying. And in Christ, He's managed to organize things, so, that, so we actually participate in it, in Christ. Um, now, how does that work, specifically? Now, well, I think Paul tells us all about this um, in some detail, particularly in Romans 6, uh, but also with insights from Romans 7 Romans 5, a little bit going on in Romans 8, but Romans 6 is what, really where it happens. And what seems to have happened in Paul's mind is, uh, Christ has entered into our situation, our human situation, Um, which is good, but there's a sense in which we're oppressed uh, and disordered and fractured even by, by evil powers. The power of sin, Paul effectively spells that with a capital S, the power of death, which is a capital D. And these demonic forces have unfortunately taken up residence in the stuff that we're constituted out of our flesh so that we're transient we're corruptible we decay we sin and we die and this is a very heavy burden for humanity to bear so what god has done to drag us back uh, because this is not what god wants us this is not god's intention for creation for humanity for any of us he wants to pull us back into fellowship this is something we've done to ourselves Uh, He sends his son into that situation to become part of it and to assume it. Uh, As the Father said, that which is not assumed is not healed. And so Christ takes on all of this mess when he becomes a human. Um, And then the crucial thing for Paul is that when he's executed, when he dies on the cross, uh, that condition is terminated. It is terminated. I'm in the province of termination. And and, and here we are. That kind of places a a massive full stop after all of this corruption, all of this dislocation, all of this disorder. Um, But in order to get us through uh, and transform us and heal us, God really must provide a state beyond this. And this is the eschatology. This is the eschaton. This is the things to do with the end. Eschaton is Greek for end. Ology is just words about stuff. So we're talking about the end, but the end has come right to us now. So christ has taken everything that we are has terminated it and then has been resurrected again into this new state where he's enthroned and sits on high at the right hand of the father now by doing that because he is god because he is also the creator because he is also the new adam the second adam the one who starts off a new humanity there's a sense in which this is now true for every one of us this is a reality for every one of us but god doesn't leave it at that uh, there is, of course, the Holy Spirit who draws each one of us into this reality in a very powerful way, in a palpable way. So, the second P is very, very important. The first P is important. That's the participation in Christ. The second P is the Spirit that stands for pneumatology. So our participation in Christ is by way of the Spirit. And as we're drawn into what Christ has done, we're drawn into this new transformation of what we are and this is a this is a being this is a humanity that is in a very real sense one in which the power of sin and death and corruption has been broken so it's quite concrete i want to say that this is reality with a capital r this is more real than anything else that you or I experience now the sharp-witted among you will have noticed i've only covered three letters (laughs) i've done a p a p and an e Why have I put an M in here uh, at the risk of making the whole thing hopelessly complicated? Well, I hope there's a very good reason for this, and that is, as you know, this reality, this new creation that we stand in the midst of, it's not terribly obvious on one level. Uh, And Paul's converts knew this. They sensed that when he talked about the new reality, sin being broken, the power of death being broken, they couldn't see it. And what Paul said to them was, if you're part of Christ's story, you are absolutely guaranteed the fullness of this reality. You are guaranteed it. But you must be part of the front end of the story. How do we know we're part of the front end? It's when we participate in Christ's sufferings. So the, the M stands for the martyrological side of what Christ did when he obeyed the will of the Father, suffered, was obedient to the shame of the cross and then died. So it's, it's the story of his faithfulness, his faithfulness unto death. It's the story that Philippians 2, 5 to 11, talks about so much. And Paul is emphatic that as we experience some of the suffering um, that we do experience in this life, and also, at the same time, we do experience some of the faithfulness and the obedience. We, we experience some of the martyrological side of Christ, and we know from that we know that we are bolted into this story in a very real way, and that we're in the front end of a story that ends in the termination of all that's bad, but a glorious resurrection of all that's good. Now that sounds a little complex, but I think this is really the heart of Paul's gospel. Um, this is really what powers him up. This is what excites him. This is what he thinks God has done in Christ. This is what leads him to travel all over the eastern Mediterranean to suffer the struggle to found little communities everywhere. This is what gives meaning to the Lord's Supper. This is what gives meaning to to baptism, for Paul. So baptism uh, symbolizes beautifully and enacts this 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 idea of participating in Christ's death and then also being resurrected to new life. Um,
0: I find it all incredibly exciting um, and helpful. Paul often comes uh, come uh, well not only Paul as far as that goes, but. But we often find throughout the New Testament, a, a we, it, it's as though the letters begin with the assumption yes. that the recipients are undergoing some kind of suffering. Yes. Uh, usually, it can be persecution. Oftentimes, mm. Mm. Uh, and and then he's moving from that into. But it has this great meaning for you. Mm. Very true. Mm. And how's that any different from what all of us experience? I mean. Yeah. All you have to do is listen to the, uh, to the adults, if you're a kid, and they're talking about what hurts <laughs> and uh, what the gov- how the government yeah. is uh, doing something to, <laughs> to mess things up. Mm, mm. And there's always something going on that's mm. uh, a painful, uh, a, a tragedy, a mm. crisis. Mm, mm. and We live from one crisis and tragedy to the next. Mm. There's a sense in which um, I think apart from Christ it's hard to give meaning to suffering.
1: We can try, but part of the struggle of life, as we suspect often, does my pain have value? Does it have worth? Does it does it mean anything? I think what Paul is offering us here is an understanding of of, of suffering that does have a real core of meaning in it. It's not any old suffering, though. Um, I think we get this from one of Paul's rather neglected letters, most strongly, but 2 Corinthians, articulates at great length what it means for him as a leader of the church to suffer. And he talks about this suffering. He hasn't gone looking for it. It's found him. But this is a mark of his authenticity um, and a very powerful one, I think. And I I, I don't want us to run off and look for pain, (laughs) but there's a sense in which if it does encounter us, it's something that can mean something. The other thing that we get from second corinthians is the suffering that paul catalogues there from time to time is suffering in which he is reaching out with a gospel to those who do not know about it um, and in a way are even hostile towards it um it's 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 the suffering that's generated when you take the incarnation seriously and you act in an incarnational way and that's when you you begin to follow the spirit into situations and locations where you're uncomfortable with people that you're uncomfortable with where god is calling you to go and when you have to push through these barriers and boundaries we love to surround ourselves with barriers and boundaries and keep out the people we're uncomfortable with but god of course is ahead of us and is often pulling us through those to engage with those people when you move through those barriers you get out of your comfort zone you get into cultures you get into languages and situations that you're not comfortable with Uh, you do experience suffering, you experience incomprehension, you experience rejection. And to top it all off, you're arriving with this shocking gospel. A gospel that is a wonderful gospel of grace, but it's also a gospel that says to people, you can do nothing to please God. God has done everything to help you. God has come the whole way to you. And that means, in effect, all the things that you're offering me, you just have to put away. uh, Put away for now. Um, So it's a a message that in its very generosity can elicit conflict and hostility. So I think Paul gives us a narrative in 2 Corinthians of the sort of suffering that is often associated with Christian ministry and Christian work, and what he's trying to say is, it's okay, this is going to happen, Uh, enjoy it if you can, rejoice in it, because this is an authentic mark of the reality of the Christian gospel.
0: Uh, where do you look for assurance uh, of being in Christ if you're not experiencing that kind mm-hmm. of uh, of suffering?
1: Yeah, it, it, that's a good point and should allow me to clarify something that's very important here. Um, I'm not advocating going and finding pain, but I think that we often define it very strongly with reference to ourselves in quite an individual way. And what Paul is talking about is an attitude of burden-bearing, So the pain that paul often talks about is actually in part the pain of other congregations and other people and other groups uh, that that he is shouldering and carrying the pain that he's feeling Um, i would want to say that god is calling us to carry the burdens of people this is where we're meant to be going and i think the spirit is often way ahead of us i mean i often think of john 4 Uh, when Jesus pointed out to the disciples, you look at the fields and say, a few more months till harvest, and I say, look, the fields are white and ready for harvest now. It's incredibly true. Uh, The world around us that's ripe for harvest is a world that is suffering and struggling, and I think that's where we're called to be. So there's a sense in which, while it doesn't have to be us, I I wonder if we don't need to be in contact with people who are, in a sense, struggling. There should be perhaps a story that we can tell sometimes of relationships that have been set up, that we've followed the Spirit into, where we're trying to help. And of course, in helping, we are helped ourselves uh, and enriched ourselves. And often when we come as people who are prepared to give, we're
0: the ones who end up receiving. Paul uses that kind of language uh, in in the opening to several of his letters, where he talks about uh, how one congregation's heart is going out to uh, yes. the suffering of very another, much so. that sort of thing. Very much so, yeah. The language of sharing is all
1: over his letters, and it's because I think the reality he's involved with is such a participatory reality, where we're all, we're all very much bound up with one another. And so what happens to you affects me in a very direct way. The, the sort of community that we're being birthed into by this process is is a communion, really. It's 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 the communion of God, the divine communion, and we're being called to be a part of that. And so we're being called to be part of a communion where every person is bound up with the reality and the life of every other person. So that we look at Christ, we look at the Father, we look at the Son, we look at the Spirit. They're all defined and inextricably intertwined. And I think when we're experiencing the fullness of our personhood in Christ, what we experience is the reality that we're involved with one another in a very real way. We're very relational. Personhood is all about um, these relationships. Um, My relationship with my wife um, is a huge part of who I am. She is a huge part of my personhood. Um, she's not the only person that's part of my personal, although she's a very important one. Um, and this is this is a, a central truth. So, in a sense, uh, we need to be engaged with the people around us
0: who are hurting, and hopefully they will be engaged with us when we're hurting. So when we talk about the gospel and we talk about salvation and all, we are not talking about details of, of rules and laws to keep per se. We're talking about relationships restoration of relationships, building of rela- right relationships, good relationships, being together, being in communion with God and with one another. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we talk, I mean that's the church, that's the reality of the church, which is a reality
1: that's in God and you don't legislate a reality like that, that's to make a big mistake. Um, there's a freedom to these relationships, it's very important uh, because we're in touch with the person who's making the rules, as it were. And it turns out that this person, God, is not making rules. God is actually just calling us into these relationships that have a certain shape. So there's a flexibility about it. Um, There's a malleability, if you like, uh, which is very liberating. Once you start to Try to legalize it and legislate it, you actually mess it up. In the end of the day, there's one legislator, and that's Jesus Christ. And if we have any problems, we can kind of go to him and ask him about stuff,
0: Mm. which is nice. It's a good feeling to be operating in a situation like that. Well, so often we read Paul as though we have a relationship with the rules. Right, that our relationship is really mm. mediated by the law, and and it, it isn't about um, it, it, our focus is on where are we falling short in terms of of this rule or that rule, mm. instead of thinking about it in terms of of living out a, the the relationship into which we've uh, we've been called. Yeah,
1: I think, Paul, and, and in
0: fact, the relationship we've been given that we are yeah. actually uh, are part of. Right. and participating in, whether negatively or positively. Right, yes.
1: No, I I think uh, Paul was anything but a legalist, and you can see this, uh, I think, reasonably clearly, when you lay his letters out alongside one another on the table, and look at their diversity, and see the very different advice that's going to Philippi from the advice that's going to Corinth. And even the advice that goes to Corinth in the second letter that goes to Corinth, the advice that goes to Colossa, the advice that goes to Rome, extremely diverse, which suggests to me that Paul is very context-sensitive. He's not laying down universal rules. He's speaking out of a universal reality, which is a very different thing. And that reality is essentially
0: personal. It's a community. It involves people. It involves the divine communion. It's like he gets to the uh, very different needs and conclusions by the same path. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, under the same lordship, yeah. one might say. Well, a lot of similarity in uh, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and yet uh, addressing different issues.
1: That's right, that's right. Um, Paul is um, what we might call almost a command ethicist. He's very worried about the thought that you lay down a rule because he thinks while that can be a good thing for a while, as he points out in Romans 7, eventually you can make that rule go to some situation where it will do some damage. You can exploit it. Uh, And the demonic forces that are unleashed in the world that stand against us um, are so much more sophisticated than we are and they can manipulate these things um, and they 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 can break you down by putting them to work. So Paul's approach is he's no longer orienting himself primarily by written instructions or by rule after rule or by even by by propositions he's orienting himself um through Christ directly. So he's he's listening to Christ and Christ is telling him what to do. So it's it's a living situation where he's getting instructions from the one who is is controlling and organising everything, and he's getting his instructions from the Spirit and from the Father as well. It's not just Christ who's doing this, um, and that's a very different mentality, isn't it? It's a much more intimate reality, I think, than than
0: we tend to to live in ourselves. I think an example of that might be the, the way unity is often used mm. uh, it, with churches. There's a uh, Paul is talking about unity and unity in mm. in the Spirit and in the faith, and we instead of seeing that as being rooted in the relationship of love, we instead use it as a weapon, mm, as mm. a church, to uh, um, compel... Right, we uh, legislate uh, unity. Yeah, we, we legislate <laughs> a yeah. um, a lockstep approach mm. to something and call that unity I know. as though it's unity, but it isn't far from anything resembling communion.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And... Um,
0: what Paul is talking
1: about is the church is actually unified because it is in Christ, and Christ is unified, and he does hold everything together. So, so really what's going on is a complete failure by people to recognize the unity that Christ has established. Uh, we don't have to go out and work at establishing to this. It. We yeah. can
0: respond to something that's already there. Live in the, in the reality of what is already true. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which means I need to uh, change, as opposed to making everyone else agree with me. Exactly. exactly. Uh, Robert Capon calls it left-handed authority, as opposed to (laughs) right-handed authority. (laughs) Um, You've mentioned that Paul illustrates uh, some of his theological positions in his ministry Mm. uh, concretely. Uh, in in what he wrote about uh, the slave Onesimus and also uh, Lydia Mm. in in Philippi, Mm. how do you see those playing out here? Right. Um,
1: Well, if I'm right about Paul's Gospel and what was really making it tick, um, you've probably detected by now that God comes down so far to us and, and we're all so deeply involved in this situation. That, that's wrong and we're, we're accountable for that wrongness on a certain level um, that it, it kind of levels out all the distinctions that we like to introduce to stratify our relationships so, so the gospel of grace really knocks down status pretensions and um, when Paul talks about the new reality that we live in he does say quite clearly from time to time that these old barriers have been broken down and transcended, so that there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female, but you're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. That's his most famous saying about those things in Galatians 3.28, of course. Now, we're fond of saying that from the pulpit, and even in our Bible studies, but it's another thing to actually enact Um the erasure of these status differentials on the ground, and to push past them—that's that's hard work. And so the question arises: Was Paul himself somebody that was actually committed to doing that, or was he a bit of a theorist? Was this something he was happy talking about? Was it something he actually did? And I was um, enormously impressed when I pushed into his letter that he wrote to Philemon and reconstructed that situation there and, and realized that he was really practicing what he preached. So that the situation in that little letter, we ignore it a lot, don't we? Um, is Paul has written to a guy called Philemon. He's married to a woman called Apphia. Now, Apphia is um, a Phrygian name, and I think Philemon probably accompanied Colossians, so it's going to an ancient territory in present-day Western Turkey. Uh, it would have been ancient Phrygia. So this stands to reason. It looks as though Philemon and Apphia... Phrygian couple, which make them uh, members of an ancient civilized barbarian race. And Paul is writing on behalf of a guy called Onesimus. Now Onesimus is not his name, it's a slave name. Latin name just means useful. It's like his, we would call him handy-andy. Slaves were so depersonalized in the ancient world that they weren't allowed to use their own names. They were just called things like number one, number two, number three, or they were called after places where they were bored or they were called pet names. So Onesimus is a slave, this is his new name. When we read the letter to the Colossians, it's also going to the same situation, I think. We read a similar statement to Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11, but it's oriented slightly differently. Paul says there's no Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. What's, What's a Scythian doing? in Colossians 3.11. What is a Scythian? Well, a Scythian is a barbarian that rides around the Russian steppes, and it was a name that was applied to people that were enslaved from the northern part of the Black Sea. Uh, Everybody who was enslaved up there was just called a Scythian. You often got a higher price for them if you called them a Scythian. And these slaves were brought down into the Mediterranean. They were mainly sold at ephesus one of the great slave markets of the ancient world so it's very likely that anasimus or his parents is some poor white guy who's been enslaved by pirates uh, from the north shore of the black sea and he's come down he's been sold in ephesus and now he's working for this phrygian couple and there's a problem uh in this household right there's great unhappiness there's a really fractured relationship now paul has run into anasimus in jail. And Onesimus has come to him and said, please help me out here. Uh, Something is wrong in this household. Um, And this is something you could do in the ancient world. It wasn't quite as bad as running away. If you ran away and you were caught, you were branded, you could be executed, terrible things would happen to you. But you could run to a friend of the family and say, I'm in deep trouble here, please help me out. So Anissimus comes to Paul and as we reconstruct the relationship, this is what happened. It doesn't look like he was a Christian when he arrived. He's just a pagan. He's a pagan boy that's unhappy. He is the lowest of the low. He's an unhappy uh, slave, branded as lazy. He's a white slave from a far-off barbarian land. So in terms of social status in the ancient world, he's as low as you go. And Paul um, practically falls in love with him. He says, this boy is my heart now. He has become my heart to me while I'm in chains. And he sends him back to his master Philemon with this letter, but also having clearly converted him, and sends back a cover letter saying to the leader of the congregation, look, take care of this situation, look out for it. And then says, I'm going to charge any money to my account. I'm coming to visit soon. So what I, what I see in there is that Paul has reached out to this, this probably teenager, and and really has grasped him, drawn him to the reality of Christ, uh, given him that gift, and set up a relationship that seems deep and committed and genuine between quite a high-status religious figure and this very, very low-status marginal Um, guy who's been causing trouble, this this person from the bottom rung of society. So I thought to myself, well, looks to me as though Paul's really delivering on this from time to time.
0: It's quite a challenge to us, of course, as well. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.